If you're enjoying this Crush Step 1 podcast, you can now get the content along with the content of the Med Prep to Go Step 1 Questions podcast ad-free in one bundle. Just go to medpreptogo.com and find our new subscription podcast called the Med Prep to Go Step 1 Bundle. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Ted O'Connell, one of the authors of Crush Step One, the ultimate USMLE Step One review, along with my co-authors, Ryan Pedigo and Thomas Blair. I am also the chief content officer for Inside the Boards. This is a Crush Step 1 podcast based on the second edition of our best-selling book. The goal is to provide you high-yield and high-quality audio content of the book to help you study on the go and reclaim some of the time in your day. This is Katie Karski, narrating part two of the endocrinology chapter. Adrenal glands. Anatomy, embryology, and histology. The adrenal glands sit on top of each kidney, superior to the kidney and also called the suprarenal glands by some. Therefore, like the kidney, the adrenal glands are retroperitoneal. Each adrenal gland has a cortex and medulla, each with distinctly different functions. Adrenal cortex, the outer layer of the adrenal gland, consisting of three layers, zona glomerulosa, zona fasciculata, and zona reticularis each of which secretes different steroid hormones because of differences in enzyme activity. Mnemonic. From outside in, the layers can be remembered by GFR, just like the filtration rate of the kidney. Zona glomerulosa, zona fasciculata, zona reticularis. Adrenal medulla. The inner layer of the adrenal gland, the adrenal medulla, is neuroectodermal in origin. The medulla is responsible for generation of epinephrine and norepinephrine to activate the sympathetic nervous system. It can also be seen in figure 9.13 that because the left kidney is farther away from the inferior vena cava, the left adrenal vein drains into the left renal vein, whereas the right adrenal vein drains into the inferior vena cava. This is the same way that the gonadal, testicular, or ovarian veins drain. Adrenal gland physiology. The adrenal cortex, as mentioned earlier, has three layers, each with different steroid hormone synthetic abilities. The zona glomerulosa secretes mineralocorticoids, such as aldosterone, salt retention. The zona fasciculata secretes glucocorticoids, such as cortisol, blood sugar elevation. And the zona reticularis secretes androgens, sex steroids. This leads to the mnemonic, the deeper you go, the sweeter it gets. Salt, sugar, sex. Zona glomerulosa. Responsible for mineralocorticoid, aldosterone secretion. It is the only part of the three layers of the adrenal cortex that does not secrete its hormone because of adrenocorticotropic hormone, ACTH. Instead, as covered in depth in chapter 15, 
The trigger for aldosterone release is through the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone axis, with angiotensin II causing aldosterone release. The actions of aldosterone are mainly on the principal cells of the distal nephron, increasing sodium reclamation from the nephron to increase intravascular volume at the expense of increasing potassium secretion. See Chapter 15 for details. It also promotes proton excretion through the alpha-intercalated cells into the lumen of the nephron to promote acid excretion. Zona fasciculata, responsible for glucocorticoid cortisol secretion. The stimulus for its release is ACTH from pituitary, and it is often a hormone secreted in response to stress. There is also a normal daily cortisol spike just before waking in the morning, diurnal pattern. Cortisol has numerous effects on the body, but the overarching activities of cortisol are a catabolic and diabetogenic effect, an anti-inflammatory effect, causing catecholamine sensitivity. Catabolism provides increased glucose synthesis through gluconeogenesis by breakdown of fat and muscle, catabolism, which is important to maintain blood sugar levels and provide for survival during fasting. Ensure a glucose source is available even if no glucose is taken in. In addition, it causes insulin resistance, diabetogenic effect, to ensure that glucose is not taken up unnecessarily by cells in times of starvation. Inhibition of bone formation. Decreases osteoblastic function and collagen synthesis, leading to cessation of bone formation. This is adaptive in periods of starvation, but is the reason that when prescription steroids are used chronically, or another form of hypercortisolism, osteoporosis can develop or worsen. Anti-inflammatory. Increases synthesis of lipocortin, which inhibits the normal function of phospholipase A2 of cleaving arachidonic acid off of lipid membranes to become inflammatory mediators, such as prostaglandins and leukotrienes. It also modulates the immune system more directly by preventing T-lymphocyte proliferation. Catecholamine sensitivity is said to be permissive to catecholamines, meaning that cortisol is required at some level to permit the catecholamines epinephrine and norepinephrine to work effectively by upregulating alpha-1 receptors, promoting vasoconstriction. This becomes extremely important in the pathology of the adrenal glands because this can lead to blood pressure disturbances when too much or too little cortisol is present. Zona reticularis, responsible for androgen secretion, most notably dehydroepiandosterone, DHEA, and androstenedione. Although this is not important in males who have testes that are androgen factories, this is the major androgenic source in females. Pathology, decreased adrenal cortex function. The adrenal cortex can malfunction in a variety of ways mostly from various causes of primary adrenal insufficiency, adrenal gland hypofunction, but also from pituitary dysfunction, decreased ACTH, or from hypothalamic dysfunction, decreased corticotropin-releasing hormone, or CRH. Because primary adrenal insufficiency is the most common, the various causes will be covered in detail. It can be further divided into acute and chronic. Acute adrenal insufficiency, secondary to either 1. Stopping prescribed corticosteroids without a tapering period, or 2. Bilateral adrenal hemorrhage, Waterhouse-Friedrichsen syndrome. Prolonged, greater than one week, use of corticosteroids leads to hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis hypofunction because the exogenous steroids have replaced the need for the adrenal gland to make its own steroids. This can lead to acute adrenal insufficiency and potential hypotension, which is why tapering of steroids is always necessary for longer duration use. Bilateral adrenal hemorrhage can occur during sepsis, especially with Neisseria meningitidis, meningococcemia. The endotoxin that it secretes can lead to disseminated intravascular coagulation, DIC, and adrenal hemorrhage called Waterhouse-Friedrichsen syndrome. This condition is almost uniformly fatal. 
chronic adrenal insufficiency, Addison disease. This is most commonly autoimmune, but can be due to miliary tuberculosis spreading to the adrenal glands in developing countries with a high prevalence of tuberculosis, TB. Loss of adrenal gland function leads to decreased aldosterone, cortisol, and androgen production. This leads to 1. Hyponatremia with a hyperkalemic metabolic acidosis caused by loss of aldosterone. 2. Hypoglycemia caused by loss of cortisol. And 3. Hypotension caused by loss of both aldosterone and cortisol. Because cortisol normally provides negative feedback on the pituitary, loss of cortisol leads to increased ACTH secretion. ACTH has a breakdown product of alpha-melanocyte-stimulating hormone, alpha-MSH. This increased melanocyte stimulation leads to hyperpigmentation. The last clue to Addison disease is eosinophilia, as a result of loss of cortisol's immunomodulatory role, which usually also causes apoptosis of eosinophils. Treatment is replacement of both mineralocorticoids and glucocorticoids. Congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Like all steroid hormones, the adrenal cortex uses cholesterol as a base substrate to generate aldosterone, the major mineralocorticoid, cortisol, the major glucocorticoid, and the adrenal androgens, DHEA and androstenedione. The various modifications require numerous enzymatic steps but only the key enzymes shown in figure 9.16 are important to commit to memory because these are the enzymes that can be deficient in various types of congenital adrenal hyperplasia, CAH. With these syndromes, any substrates before the blocked enzyme will build up and take alternative pathways, and of course, substrates after the blocked enzyme will not be used, similar to a roadblock. All the cars take another detour pathway because they need to go somewhere. These disorders are called CAH because the decreased cortisol causes increased ACTH secretion from the pituitary, leading to a tropic effect on the adrenal gland, which causes hyperplasia. 21 hydroxylase deficiency. The most common cause of CAH. In figure 9.16, it can be seen that both aldosterone and cortisol require this enzyme. Loss of this enzyme therefore leads to hyperaldosteronemia and hypocortisolism, causing similar symptoms of Addison disease in the neonate, hyperkalemic metabolic acidosis, hypotension. However, with the roadblock at 21-hydroxylase step, the products will instead flow the androgen pathway and increased androgen levels will occur. Therefore, females will have ambiguous genitalia, and males will have precocious puberty from the increased male sex steroids. 11-beta-hydroxylase deficiency. Also required in the synthesis of both aldosterone and cortisol, but the main difference here is that 11-deoxycortisol, proximal to the block, will still build up. This compound has mineralocorticoid, aldosterone-like activity. Therefore, affected individuals will have the same issue with increased androgens, but now will also have stigmata of increased mineralocorticoid activity, hypokalemic metabolic alkalosis, and hypertension. 17-alpha-hydroxylase deficiency. 17-alpha-hydroxylase is required to make anything other than aldosterone. Therefore, with this deficiency, only aldosterone can be made. This leads to predictable results. Hypokalemic metabolic alkalosis, hypertension from hyperaldosteronism, and decreased androgens and cortisol. Increased aldosterone secretion. Increased aldosterone secretion can occur from increased production of any part of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone axis, and generally includes juxtaglomerular JG cell tumors secreting renin, renal artery stenosis causing kidney JG cells to sense less perfusion and increase renin, or aldosterone-secreting tumors. Primary hyperaldosteronism, Kahn syndrome. 
caused by an aldosterone-secreting adenoma in the zona glomerulosa of the adrenal gland cortex, leading to findings of increased aldosterone activity, a hypokalemic metabolic alkalosis, and potentially hypertension. The potassium derangements often lead to weakness. Alkalosis can lead to tetany. Calcium normally is bound to albumin. With alkalosis, less proton is bound to albumin and can therefore accept more calcium, leading to a decreased ionized calcium level and tetany. The main distinguishing factor of primary versus secondary hyperaldosteronism is that in primary hyperaldosteronism, the aldosterone is being secreted independent of renin, and therefore, renin levels will be low. Secondary hyperaldosteronism can be caused by renal artery stenosis, kidney thinking it is hypoperfused, or a JG cell tumor, or even simply by having actual hypoperfusion, such as in congestive heart failure. Symptoms can be similar, but renin levels will be high in all these conditions. Treatment involves addressing the underlying cause, but as a temporizing measure, spironolactone, an aldosterone receptor antagonist, and potassium-sparing diuretic can be given to block the effects of excess aldosterone on the kidney. Increased cortisol secretion. Increased cortisol secretion can occur from increased amounts of anything along the hypothalamic-pituitary-adrenal axis, CRH from the hypothalamus, ACTH from the pituitary or ectopic site, or adrenal gland tumor-producing cortisol. The findings in hypercortisolism, Cushing syndrome, can be striking. Cortisol causes fat and protein catabolism, leading to wasted extremities. But the increased insulin causes upregulation of lipoprotein lipase, promoting central fat deposition, so-called trunculoobesity. The decreased collagen synthesis leads to hemorrhagic, purple-red striae in the abdomen, when the skin stretches because it cannot accommodate the increased truncal fat. Other findings include moon facies, fat deposition in the facial area, a buffalo hump, dorsocervical upper back fat deposition, and even electrolyte derangements seen in hyperaldosteronism. With very high levels, cortisol can attach to the mineralocorticoid receptor and have aldosterone-like activity. It is important to first elicit the history from the patient. Iatrogenic hypercortisolism can occur in patients taking chronic glucocorticoid therapy, such as patients with autoimmune diseases or transplants. Adrenal Cushing Syndrome Excess cortisol is being produced because of an adrenal gland tumor, causing high cortisol levels. In this case, the ACTH level will be low, because the tumor will be providing large amounts of cortisol, and therefore large amounts of negative feedback on the pituitary. Pituitary Cushing Syndrome, Cushing Disease Only an ACTH-secreting tumor is termed Cushing Disease, yet any condition that causes hypercortisolism is referred to as Cushing Syndrome. An ACTH-secreting tumor in the pituitary is the most common cause of hypercortisolism, after an iatrogenic cause is ruled out. Because the tumor secretes ACTH, it will lead to high levels of both ACTH and cortisol. Ectopic perineoplastic Cushing syndrome, most often seen in small cell carcinoma of the lung, which can also secrete ADH. This will lead to high levels of both ACTH and cortisol. Both pituitary and octopic Cushing syndrome cause increased ACTH and cortisol, so there must be a way to distinguish the two. The answer is a dexamethasone suppression test. In this test, a low dose of dexamethasone, a cortisol analog, is given, and a high dose of dexamethasone is given to see if negative feedback is still active to some extent. In the low-dose case, Neither pituitary nor ectopic Cushing syndrome will cause a decrease in cortisol production. However, the high-dose test can differentiate the two. The pituitary still has some negative feedback ability, because it is used to having negative feedback, and will cause cortisol suppression with high-dose dexamethasone. 
Because the ectopic ACTH-secreting tumor does not have a negative feedback loop, it has no suppression with either low or high dose. Increased catecholamine secretion. Increased catecholamine secretion can occur from tumors of the adrenal medulla or the sympathetic nervous chain. This can be caused by a pheochromocytoma, paraganglioma, or neuroblastoma, depending on the age of the patient. Pheochromocytoma occurs in adults and is a neoplasm of the chromaffin cells, which secrete catecholamines such as epinephrine and norepinephrine. Although these are mostly benign, meaning they cannot metastasize, they cause the five P's of hyperadrenergic states, pressure, hypertension, pain, headache, perspiration, sweating is sympathetic cholinergic, palpitations, tachycardia from beta-1 receptor activation on the heart, and pallor from alpha-1 vasoconstriction. These symptoms are not constant, but rather occurs sporadically. There is also the rule of 10%, which is not quite accurate, but easy to remember. 10% are malignant, 10% are bilateral, 10% are extra-adrenal in the sympathetic chain, paraganglioma, 10% are children, 10%, actually 30%, are familial, neurofibromatosis, MEN2A2B, von Hippel-Lindau, 10% calcify, and of course, you're 10 times more likely to see this on an exam than in real life. Diagnosis is by measuring 24-hour urine excretion of catecholamines and total metanephrines, metabolites of catecholamines. Treatment is surgery, but medical interventions to block the excess sympathetic outflow are also required before removal. The medications phenoxybenzamine, an irreversible alpha-1 antagonist. Important that it is irreversible because the high levels of catecholamines can outcompete a reversible agent, and a beta blocker are commonly given. Neuroblastoma occurs in children and is the fourth most common childhood cancer after acute lymphocytic leukemia, lymphoma, and medulloblastoma making it the most common solid extracranial tumor. This is associated with NMIC amplification and can commonly metastasize to liver, skin, and bones. Young children less than one year of age have a good prognosis, with the tumor often spontaneously disappearing. Older children have a very poor prognosis. Histologically, this is a small cell tumor with Homer Wright rosettes. A rosette is a rose-shaped decoration, meaning that all the cells come together in grouped clusters like a bunch of roses. Neuroblastoma may be first suspected by finding an abdominal mass on physical examination. Diagnosis can be confirmed by urinary homovanillic acid, HVA levels, a breakdown product of dopamine. Treatment is surgery. Endocrine pancreas anatomy, embryology, and histology. The pancreas is a dual-function organ, having both endocrine, hormone released into blood, and exocrine, excreting contents such as enzymes into the pancreatic duct and then the duodenum, functions. The exocrine function of the pancreas is covered in Chapter 10, but the endocrine function will be covered here. The pancreas lies deep, posterior to the stomach, and is a retroperitoneal organ, except for part of the tail of the pancreas. The ductal system is important to the exocrine function of the pancreas, but because endocrine hormones are put into the blood and not into ducts, they do not play a role in the endocrine function of the pancreas. Embryologically, the pancreas is made up of dorsal and ventral buds that came from the foregut. These confuse abnormally and lead to an annular pancreas that encircles the duodenum. This can lead to duodenal stenosis if the annular pancreas is causing compression. Although the endocrine pancreas accounts for only 2% of the mass of the pancreas, it is necessary to sustain life. The endocrine pancreas is contained within the islets of Langerhans, which can be seen in the histologic image as a lighter colored and more scantily cellular area. These islets of Langerhans have alpha, beta, and delta cells, which are the main cells that secrete glucagon, 
insulin, and somatostatin gastrin, respectively. The alpha cells, which secrete glucagon, are on the outside. Alpha equals away from the center. The beta cells, which secrete insulin, are toward the center. The delta cells are interspersed among the alpha and beta cells. Endocrine pancreas physiology. Insulin, from the beta cells of the islets of Langerhans, insulin plays a key role in the regulation of blood glucose levels. Although there are many stimuli for its release, the most important is elevated glucose in the blood, hyperglycemia, such as after a meal. Insulin is released from the beta cell of the islet of Langerhans in response to elevated blood glucose by the following steps. 1. Glucose goes into the beta cell via GLUT2 glucose transporters. 2. Glucose is metabolized into ATP. 3. This ATP closes the potassium channel that previously was hyperpolarizing the cell, leading to depolarization of the cell. 4. This depolarization triggers a calcium channel to open, facilitating calcium influx into the cell. And 5. The calcium influx into the cell triggers release of preformed insulin into the bloodstream. In this preformed insulin-containing granule is also a cleavage byproduct of proinsulin called C-peptide, connecting peptide. This will become important in pathology because C-peptide is present with endogenous insulin but is not present in commercially available injectable insulin. C-peptide levels in blood can determine whether the insulin is coming from the body or from a needle. The mechanism of action of the beta cell also becomes important with sulfonuria medications, which attach to the sulfonuria receptor on the potassium channel. Triggering the sulfonuria receptor closes the potassium channel, much like ATP did, leading to depolarization and calcium influx to trigger insulin release from the beta cells. Diazoxide, on the other hand, keeps this channel open and prevents insulin release and can be used in the treatment of insulinoma, described later. The insulin, now released into the bloodstream, acts on its insulin receptor, starting a cascade mediated by MAP kinase and PI3K. All these physiologic effects are what would be expected when a lot of sugar is available for the body to use. Insulin is the hormone of plenty, and has an overall anabolic effect. The tissues most dependent on insulin for glucose uptake are skeletal muscle and adipose tissue, GLUT4. Some parts of the body, such as the brain and red blood cells, use a different glucose channel, GLUT1, that is not insulin-dependent because these always need glucose regardless of availability. Red blood cells do not have nuclei or mitochondria, and can only use glucose as a fuel. Fusion of GLUT4 glucose channels into the cell membrane promotes glucose uptake into cells, reducing serum blood sugar level. Promotes glycogen creation, prevents gluconeogenesis. This is due to the abundance of sugar with higher insulin levels. Promotes storage of sugar as glycogen and prevents gluconeogenesis, because there is no need to make glucose if there is adequate glucose available. Increases lipoprotein lipase activity, which brings fat into cells, and inhibits hormone-sensitive lipase activity, which brings fat into the bloodstream. This decreases lipolysis by promoting fat deposition in the adipocytes, making maximum use of the preferred fuel, glucose. Glucagon has the opposite effect on these two hormones promotes potassium uptake into cells by stimulating the sodium-potassium ATPase. Glucagon, from the alpha cells of the islets of Langerhans, glucagon has many effects opposing insulin, the hormone of starvation. Therefore, the major stimulus for glucagon secretion is hypoglycemia. Increasing glycogenolysis and gluconeogenesis Glucagon promotes breakdown of glycogen, as well as gluconeogenesis. This is through decreased production of fructose-2,6-bisphosphonate, which in turn decreases phosphofructokinase activity. Decreased PFK leads to slowed glucose metabolism, 
instead favoring gluconeogenesis. Increasing availability of fatty acids. Glucagon decreases lipoprotein lipase activity, less importing of fat into adipocytes, and increases hormone-sensitive lipase activity, increases exportation of fat from adipocytes into the bloodstream. These are turned into keto acids after metabolism and account for ketonuria and ketonemia in starving patients or those who have an absolute insulin deficiency. Diabetic ketoacidosis. Diabetes. Of all functions of the pancreas, the most commonly seen pathologic condition involves disorders of insulin production, type 1 diabetes, and insulin sensitivity, type 2 diabetes. Both will lead to the cardinal symptoms of polyuria, osmotic diuresis, and polydipsia, thirst secondary to fluid loss from osmotic diuresis. But type 2 diabetes is often asymptomatic and incidentally discovered with laboratory screening. Type 1 diabetes mellitus, 10%, characterized by autoimmune destruction of the beta cells of the islets of Langerhans, leading to absolute insulin deficiency, typically affects thin younger people because of lack of insulin to deposit fat into adipose tissue. This is associated with HLA-DR3 and HLA-DR4 in whites, HLA-DR7 in African Americans, and HLA-DR9 in Japanese people. The absolute insulin deficiency can lead to diabetic ketoacidosis, DKA, a potentially fatal disease if untreated, and often the first manifestation of type 1 diabetes. Type 2 diabetes 90%. The most common type of diabetes, characterized by insulin resistance secondary to decreased insulin receptor synthesis from increased adiposity. Defects in receptor and signaling pathways also develop, further limiting the effect of insulin in these patients. Initially, patients may be hyperinsulinemic as compensation for their decreased insulin sensitivity but eventually the beta cells fail from the increased demand and they will have a relative insulin deficiency. The relative insulin deficiency usually does not lead to ketoacidosis, enough insulin present to prevent widespread lipolysis, but can lead to hyperosmolar non-ketotic state, HNS, previously called hyperosmolar hyperglycemic non-ketotic coma, HHNKC. HNS is more descriptive because it does not necessarily cause coma. Type 2 diabetes mellitus has a much stronger link to family history than type 1 diabetes mellitus. Diagnosis of diabetes. The following are the current criteria used for diagnosis of diabetes. The diagnosis is not met with a single value on a single day. One of the four criteria must be met on two separate days. Random plasma glucose greater or equal to 200 mg per deciliter with symptoms of diabetes, polyuria, polydipsia. Fasting plasma glucose greater than or equal to 126 mg per deciliter. Two-hour plasma glucose level after 75 grams of oral glucose administered greater than or equal to 200 milligrams per deciliter. Hemoglobin A1c, greater than or equal to 6.5%. Hemoglobin A1c is a measure of the level of glycosylation of hemoglobin and is a marker of long-term glucose control over the past few months because red blood cells usually live 120 days. If there is suspicion of type 1 diabetes, there are autoantibodies that can be tested as well. These include islet cell autoantibodies, anti-insulin antibodies, and antibodies to glutamic acid decarboxylase, an enzyme involved in insulin synthesis. Chronic effects of hyperglycemia. There are many problems with long-term hyperglycemia, whether from type 1 or type 2 diabetes. The classic triad of microvascular disease is retinopathy, neuropathy, and nephropathy, 
but there is also macrovascular disease, accelerated atherosclerosis, which leads to increased incidence of strokes and myocardial infarctions. These complications occur through three pathologic processes, osmotic damage, non-enzymatic glycosylation, and diabetic microangiopathy. Osmotic damage. Glucose can be converted into sorbitol by aldose reductase. Although some organs have the ability to metabolize sorbitol, the eye and the nerves do not. This sorbitol gets trapped inside the cells and can cause osmotic damage when water rushes into the cell to balance the osmotic forces. This leads to Schwann cell damage in neurons and promotes neuropathy through demyelination. In the eye, this can lead to cataracts in the lens and retinopathy in the retina. Non-enzymatic glycosylation. This is when hyperglycemia allows sugar to attach to proteins without the aid of an enzyme, hence non-enzymatic. This causes dysfunction of the protein. In blood vessels, this leads to increased vessel permeability and predisposes it to atherosclerosis. Not only does this play a role in all three microvascular diseases, retinopathy, neuropathy, and nephropathy, as well as macrovascular disease, but it also gives way to track glycemic control over the long term by hemoglobin A1c, which is a measure of the glycosylation of hemoglobin. In diabetic patients, the goal is usually a hemoglobin A1c of less than 7%. Diabetic microangiopathy. With increased blood sugar, the endothelial cells that line the blood vessels take in additional glucose. Some of this glucose is made into glycoproteins, which are placed on the surface of the endothelial cells and cause thickening and weakening of the basement membrane, type 4 collagen. This weakening can lead to increased permeability, causing proteinuria in the kidney, diabetic glomerulosclerosis, with Kimmel-Steele-Wilson nodules, which are actually type 4 collagen, and potential for edema and hemorrhage in the retina, diabetic retinopathy. Because there are blood vessels that nourish the nerves, vasa nervorum, damage here can also lead to diabetic neuropathy. Acute emergencies in diabetes. As mentioned previously, type 1 diabetes predisposes to the potential development of DKA, whereas type 2 diabetes predisposes to the potential development of HNS. Both are acute emergencies that need to be recognized and treated. Diabetic ketoacidosis. Often seen in patients who are noncompliant with insulin dosage when treated for type 1, or because of a secondary illness causing increased stress on the body. This may even be the first manifestation of previously undiagnosed type 1 diabetes mellitus. The absolute insulin deficiency leads to hyperglycemia from decreased cell uptake of glucose coupled with high levels of gluconeogenesis from high glucagon levels. The hyperglycemia causes subsequent dehydration from osmotic diuresis. Despite the abundance of serum glucose, without insulin, there is a lack of intracellular glucose. The body shifts toward lipolysis using fat for energy, with keto acids such as acetoacetate and beta-hydroxybutyrate being produced as a byproduct of beta-oxidation of fatty acids. This is because there is no insulin to inhibit hormone-sensitive lipase or stimulate lipoprotein lipase which would decrease fat metabolism. Laboratory findings, including hyperkalemic acidosis with increased anion gap because of ketones and potentially lactic acidosis if in shock, hyponatremia, glucose osmols draw in water and dilute the sodium. This is actually a true hyponatremia and not pseudohyponatremia, but will be corrected with the correction of glucose, and ketonuria and ketonemia. Clinical findings include Kussmaul respirations, deep rapid breathing from profound acidosis, respiratory compensation, dehydration with tachycardia from osmotic diuresis, and a fruity odor on the breath from acetone secreted in the saliva. Treatment is fluids and insulin. 
as well as potassium supplementation. In addition to promoting glucose uptake, insulin upregulates the sodium-potassium ATPase, promoting cellular uptake of potassium. Hypokalemia, with insulin administration, must be carefully monitored in this condition because the patients usually have a global potassium deficit from osmotic diuresis. Even if they appear hyperkalemic from the acidosis moving potassium out of the cells by hydrogen-potassium exchangers. Hyperosmolar non-ketotic state, HNS. Associated with type 2 diabetes mellitus with severely high blood sugar, usually greater than 600 mg per deciliter, and subsequently hyperosmolarity. This leads to significant dehydration from osmotic diuresis as well as osmolar shifts, which cause changes in mental status. There is no ketosis because of the presence of insulin, which inhibits lipolysis. This syndrome goes by numerous names, and hyperosmolar hyperglycemic state, HSS, and hyperosmolar non-ketotic coma, HONKC, may also be seen. Islet cell tumors. Insulinoma a benign tumor of the beta cells of the islets of Langerhans, with a strong correlation to MEN1 syndrome, pituitary pancreas parathyroid. This causes chronically elevated insulin levels, leading to hypoglycemia. As mentioned before, this is endogenous insulin. There will be high levels of insulin as well as high levels of C-peptide. High levels of C-peptide will not be seen with injectable insulin, and therefore the two conditions can be differentiated based on this fact. Treatment is surgery or streptozosin, which is a medication that is toxic to beta cells. Diazoxide can also help prevent release of insulin and prevent hypoglycemia. Octreotide can also be considered because it will decrease insulin release as well. Glucagonoma, a malignant tumor of the alpha cell of the Eilatzelangerhans, with hyperglycemia from the increased gluconeogenesis and glycogenolysis caused by the glucagon. In addition, there is a characteristic rash called necrotic migratory erythema, NME. Treatment is surgery and octreotide, a somatostatin analog, which decreases glucagon production by the malignant tumor. Somatostatinoma a malignant tumor of the delta cells of the islets of Langerhans. Somatostatin inhibits almost every GI-related hormone, including gastrin, cholecystokinin, CCK, and secretin. Inhibition of CCK causes the gallbladder to fail to contract, leading to cholelithiasis. Inhibition of secretin can cause steatorrhea, because secretin causes bicarbonate secretion from the pancreas, allowing lipases to work. Lack of this can cause the digestive enzymes to be ineffective, leading to malabsorption and steatorrhea. VIPoma, a malignant tumor causing release of vasoactive intestinal peptide. This peptide, in high amounts, causes what is called pancreatic cholera a cholera-like syndrome characterized by diffuse diarrhea with dehydration, hypokalemic acidosis, GI loss of potassium and bicarb, and widespread vasodilation, hence vasoactive. Zollinger-Ellison syndrome, gastronoma, a malignant tumor that secretes gastrin, leading to increased production with widespread gastroduodenal ulcers. The increased acid denatures digestive enzymes, leading to malabsorption and diarrhea. Anytime multiple or refractory duodenal ulcers are present, you should have a high suspicion for this syndrome. The diagnosis is also suggested by elevated gastrin levels, but proton pump inhibitor medications will also cause elevated gastrin as a reflex from the decreased stomach acidity. Pharmacology of Diabetes Mellitus Insulin For those with type 1 diabetes, insulin injections are required to sustain life. For those with type 2 diabetes, 
Insulin may be required because there is progressive beta cell failure over time and subsequent insulin deficiency. Insulin is also the most common medication used to treat pregnant women with gestational diabetes because insulin does not cross the blood placenta barrier. Insulin is injected subcutaneously or through an insulin pump. Because insulin promotes fatty acid uptake into adipocytes, local lipodystrophy can occur. The most common side effect of insulin injections is hypoglycemia, especially if a patient forgets to take a meal after dose insulin. Rapid-acting insulin preparations Insulin aspart, insulin lispro, insulin glulacine. Short-acting insulin preparations, regular insulin. Intermediate-acting insulin preparations, NPH insulin. Long-acting insulin preparations, insulin glargine, insulin detonmir, insulin deglutec. Sulfonuria drugs, gliburide, glipizide, glimepiride. Sulfonuria drugs act to increase the body's pancreatic production of insulin. Recall that normally glucose enters the beta cell and is metabolized to ATP. ATP then closes a potassium channel that was previously hyperpolarizing the cell. This depolarization leads to calcium influx and insulin release. The same potassium channel has a sulfonuria receptor that sulfonuria can bind to and close the channel independent of ATP, leading to insulin release. Of course, this will only work if there are functional beta cells in the pancreas available to secrete insulin. Will not work in type 1 diabetes. The most common side effect of sulfonuria drugs is hypoglycemia. Biguanides. Metformin. Metformin has numerous actions to reduce hyperglycemia by decreasing hepatic gluconeogenesis and acts as an insulin-sensitizing agent by promoting glucose uptake in the body's cells. Because this medication prevents hyperglycemia rather than causing hypoglycemia, it is said to be euglycemic in that it cannot be a cause of hypoglycemia. Also, because there is no direct action of metformin on the pancreas, this can be used in patients without beta cell function to help lower injected insulin requirements. The most serious side effect is lactic acidosis. Lactate uptake in the liver is decreased with metformin because lactate is changed into glucose through gluconeogenesis, a process that metformin inhibits. Although this is inconsequential in healthy individuals because the excess lactate can be cleared by the kidneys, patients with renal failure, decreased lactate clearance, or respiratory disease causing relative hypoxia, leading to increased lactate through anaerobic metabolism, can develop lactic acidosis. Thiazolidinediones, Pioglitazone, Glitazone drugs. These medications are insulin sensitizers and bind to a nuclear receptor called the Paroxysome Proliferator Activated Receptor Gamma Receptor, PPAR-gamma. Activation of PPAR-gamma leads to increased synthesis of GLUT4 glucose channels and other genes involved in insulin sensitivity. Side effects include water retention, leading to edema, weight gain, and potentially heart failure from fluid overload. Older preparations of thiazolidinediones cause hepatotoxicity. This has not been found in newer preparations, but may be found on an examination regardless. Incretin mimetics, tides, exanatide, liraglutide, and DPP4 inhibitors, glyptins, citagliptin, linagliptin, saxagliptin. The incretin pathway is activated when nutrients reach the intestine and act to stimulate insulin release before the glucose actually makes it to the bloodstream to better regulate sugar. These receptors are found in the intestines, so intravenous nutrition will not activate this pathway. DPP4 inhibitors, such as citagliptin, prevent breakdown of incretins, whereas incretin analogs, such as exanatide, mimic the incretin GLP1 
and activate the pathway directly. As an interesting aside, exanatide is derived from Gila monster saliva and can potentially cause nausea and pancreatitis. Alpha-glucosidase inhibitors. Acarbose, miglitol. Acarbose inhibits the intestinal brush border alpha-glucosidase, an enzyme necessary for digestion of carbohydrates, leading to decreased blood sugar by decreased absorption. However, this leftover osmotic agent causes osmotic diarrhea and flatulence from bacterial metabolism of carbohydrates, which forms H2 and CO2 gas. Because this enzyme breaks down branches of carbohydrates, monosaccharides will still be absorbed normally. Anyone who is lactose intolerant and cannot break down and absorb lactose knows that the osmotic diarrhea and flatulence from bacterial breakdown of the disaccharides is unpleasant. Because of these side effects, this medication is rarely used. Sodium glucose cotransporter 2, SGLT2 inhibitors. Canaglifosin, gliflozin drugs. These drugs block reabsorption of glucose in the proximal nephron, leading to glucosuria. The main side effects of this are those attributable to glucosuria, such as dehydration, yeast infections, and urinary tract infections, because yeast and bacteria have more glucose to proliferate. However, the most worrisome side effect is euglycemic diabetic ketoacidosis. If a patient has absolute insulin deficiency and is taking this drug, he or she can develop DKA with a relatively normal blood sugar because the excess glucose is being excreted in the urine, but the patient still will have ketoacidosis. With that, we wrap up today's episode of the Crush Step 1 podcast. A big thank you to Elsevier Incorporated, the publishing company behind Crush Step One, as well as all of my other books, for allowing us to put out this book in podcast format. Thank you for joining us, and please check out our other chapters.